Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counterformational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Okay, I need, uh, because it's Family Sunday, I need all the kids to come down front, please. All the kids to come down front for uh, the fam or for the kids sermon. Thank you. Uh, I've got a roll for you. Don't worry. Okay. Any more kids? Any more kids? Because I need everybody's participation in this one. All right. Um, so these these guys are going to help me with my children's sermon today. So uh, wave to everybody. Say hi. These are your preachers for today. Wave everybody. Will. Tell them hi, you're the preacher today with me. Okay, so there's a part in today's sermon that is about, so you guys, have you heard about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us? Did you know that after he died on the cross, they put him inside of a tomb? It's like a, a, and they rolled a big stone, look at this stone, they rolled a stone in front of the tomb. So, Will, you're going to play Jesus, okay? So come over here. You go right under there. Can you go under there? If you don't want to, can I have another volunteer? You want to play Jesus? Okay, you're Jesus. <clears throat> All right. So, Will, will you be a soldier? Okay, so here's what happened. They, they put Jesus in the tomb, and the religious leaders were a little, like, worried. They're like, well, wait a minute. What if, well, yeah, they were, they were afraid of angels. They, watch what happens. So they, they said, what if the disciples come and steal the body of Jesus? So they thought one of the disciples was going to come over and roll the stone away and steal the body and tell everybody he rose from the dead, right? But you know what? The disciples didn't come to steal the body. You know what instead happened? The bad guys in the story took soldiers and put them next to the tomb. So will you be a soldier? Okay, you've got to stand really tough, strong, flex a little bit go, I'm a soldier, okay? Will you be his uh, big brother soldier? Uh, no, you can stand up. You're the big soldier. <laughs> He's the little soldier. Okay, so they're guarding the tomb, and then they took a seal, this stuff that they uh, sealed it to the rock, and they sealed it all the way around the tomb so that nobody could get in because they were worried that somebody would come and steal the body of Jesus. But then you know what happened? Two angels, come here, you two angels. Two angels came in the middle of the night while Jesus and the angels came and went boom do this boom now the soldiers fall down and then the angels rolled the stone away and Jesus came out alive oh I ran over a soldier yeah so that is what happened on Easter Sunday Today what we're going to talk about is what happens right before that. So everybody give them a hand. The children did a great job. Thanks. Okay, go ahead and, uh, so if you're new to our church, we once a quarter, we do Family Sunday, where the kids stay in here with us, and we do a little sermon like that for them first. So thank you. Um, Angels, soldiers, Jesus, the whole nine. Appreciate your participation. All right, uh, let's go ahead and get into the scripture. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be, verse 45. 
And I'm reading the text today, so would you please stand for the reading of God's word once you get it. Oh, by the way, too, we put Bibles in the back of the pew. You can grab one of those Bibles if you want. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that home with you. Matthew 27, we're going to read verses 45 through 66. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own tomb. And when he had cut out in the rock, he rolled, away, he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as you address us here now in your word through the story, may we be shaped and formed by the story of your gospel. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying in this text. And I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't yet know you, then as the cross is preached, that their soul would be awakened. So we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said... Amen. You can have a seat. Responding to tragedy is a part of our lives. This last few weeks in the United States, of course, there's been various tragedies. Uh, The tragedy in Texas, which was a gut check. There has been a lot of them, but this one in particular because it was children. And of course, we had the, in Buffalo, there was a a mass shooting. And we could talk about Ukraine. We could talk about uh, the fact that we've all kind of been collectively through COVID. These last few years have been rough. 
You talk about all the divisions and all of those things. So tragedy happens in this world, and the question is, how does that tragedy have an effect on you? How do you respond to that tragedy? Then we have personal tragedies, right? We have death in the family. We have uh, a betrayal or a relationship that didn't go right. We have divorce. We have people, uh, tragedies of sickness. People get cancer, and they, uh, their bodies are broken, and they go through deep pain, and we suffer with them as they are suffering, and we sometimes see people pass. So there's tragedy there. There's car accidents. There's the tragedy of our own personal decisions and failures that we all face. And so here's the, here's the deal. The world that we live in has tragedy. There are tragedies that are kind of feel like they're out there, and then there are tragedies that are right here at home. And what the scriptures teach us is that the gospel of Jesus is, is a tragedy on one hand. It's a tragedy that becomes a comedy, a, something to celebrate, but it starts as a tragedy. But it's not just a tragedy that's out there, it's a tragedy that's near here. So we talk about the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. We could talk about the pain of that, but you don't personally probably know any of those folks. And so it's somewhat not personal. You whether why there's other tragedies that are very personal to you and you feel those deeply. And what happens is as we face tragedy, we actually gain a capacity for compassion. Because we face pain and then we want to give others compassion as well. But the cross of Jesus is, the, is a tragedy in the sense uh, the, of the fact that a perfect human being was put to death for nothing wrong that he had ever done. And he was put to death kind of in this collision of politics and religion and culture and selfishness, and he was put on the cross, which is the same thing that today still People are trying to crucify him in those ways with those various kinds of means. And so the cross is a tragic event, but we respond to it personally. So the question I have for you is this, as we look at the cross. Is the cross personal to you? Is it personal to you? Now, I'm not talking about the general, like, what effect has the cross had on the world? We could talk about that. We could talk about what effect the cross has had in regard to the spread of the Christian church. We could talk about all kinds of things. But I want to ask you, is the cross personal to you? And if it is, how so? The cross is the great tragic event of the Bible that also brings the great salvation event of the Bible. So the most evil thing that has ever happened, the crucifixion of the innocent Son of God, was also the greatest thing that ever happened at the one and the same moment, showing us how God works in the midst of all darkness. Every time there is darkness, every time there is evil that happens in this world, we who belong to God know that He's going to take that evil and somehow work it for good. So in Romans 8, 28, we're told God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so we know that's the reality. And so how, when we look at the cross, we can see that reality that God takes this evil moment and turns it for good. But how do we make that personal? And we see that the cross counterforms us by taking the evil and the tragic and making it redemptive. So the evil, tragic event of the crucifixion of the Son of God, the beating of the Son of God, the trial that he was found innocent at, all of that tragedy, God takes all of that tragedy and makes it redemptive for us. 
So, I'm going to, today, we're going to look at seven responses in this text to the cross. Seven different persons and how they respond to the cross. And I want to ask you, what is your response? Which person are you most like in response to the cross in this story? And there's seven different groupings of people. So, and the main thing I want to say today is this. Your response to the cross is the most important thing about you. Your response to the cross is the most important thing about you. All right, so let's go ahead and look first at the story that we, t- we talked about with the kids, the, the story of the religious leaders. Um, the, here we're going to see their response to the cross is fear, and their response to the cross is unrepentant. Fear and unrepentance. All right, let's take a look at it. Verse 62, the next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, the last fraud will be worse than the first. Okay, so the religious leaders picture the situation. They know that what they have done in killing Jesus, they killed an innocent man, that he was not guilty of the things they said he was guilty of. They had to make up testimony. Their testimony contradicted each other. They They know they are guilty of murder. But in their mind, they're thinking it's justified because if we let him go on like this, the Romans are going to take our land and take our place and take our people and not give us the freedoms that we have And we've earned some of those freedoms with the Romans. Jesus is going to make us lose them all. So it's better that we just kill him and remove that threat. And also, the other side of the story is it removes the threat against their own power. They had a lot of power, but when Jesus comes along, they begin losing their power. They begin losing money because Jesus had come along. So they know that they've killed him. They know he's now dead. And you can imagine the guilt that they're feeling. Just think about trying to go to bed that night, knowing what you've done. Think about waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, knowing what you've done. And that guilt begins to turn to shame. And when people are ashamed, they begin to react. And they begin to cover. And they begin to hide. So as they're tormented with their own guilt and they're tormented with their own shame, they go to Pilate and they say, okay, we need to make sure that we keep a good name in the midst of this whole situation. And we heard that guy, Jesus, when he was talking, he would say that he was going to rise again. And we know he's not going to rise again. But just in case they come and steal his body, let's just make sure we cover all our tracks so nobody will find out about our guilt. And nobody will find out about the shame that we're holding. And here's the thing that was driving it all. They're deeply afraid. They're deeply afraid that they're going to be found out. Now, this is also something for us. This, is, this can be a response to the cross. When we see the cross, we see that we have been guilty before God. And in our shame, like Adam and Eve, we go and we hide and we try to cover ourselves with something besides God's love, with, besides God's forgiveness. And uh, we do it out of fear, like Adam and Eve hiding in the trees. We're hiding in fear. There are many people that their response to the cross is still fear and guilt and shame. 
just like the Pharisees. Now, in one of the most comical verses in the whole Bible, if you're a preacher especially, is verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Come on, that's hilarious. Because Jesus is on the other side, he's going to come out, go make it as secure, never mind. Okay, so, but the idea is this. They cannot ever make it secure enough. And it's a comic, uh, Matthew knows this as he's writing it. I could see him smirking as he writes that. Like, go make it as secure as you can. Anyway, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they put that seal around the side and they set a guard. And then, of course, next week we'll find out what happens. But I think you know what happens. We just did it right here. Jesus rises from death. But notice what the response to the cross is. Guilt, shame, fear, cover up our tracks. And this is often the response of many humans. Guilt, shame, fear, and let's cover up our tracks. Uh, we didn't do it. We're not, we're, not, we're not responsible for the death of the Son of God. Number two, the bystanders that were there at the cross. Let's see what their response is. Verse 46. And about the, or sorry, verse 47. And some of the bystanders, hearing it said... This man is calling for Elijah. And then if you jump to verse 49, but others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. There was a kind of a, a folk religion sort of a thing. Like, just like in uh, you know, Roman Catholics will pray to St. Christopher. And the idea is St. Christopher will come and help me do this or help me find something or help me you know, fix my car or whatever that is. So around religions, folk religions sometimes develop, and that's what was going on here. There was folk religion that had developed that said you could call on Elijah to come and save you in tense situations. So the people walking by are just guys probably coming out from the fields after work. Oftentimes in this area of the city where Jesus was crucified would be the area where there was people getting drunk and this is where the prostitutes would hang out and this is where they're killing Jesus and crucifying. So who knows who these guys are, but they're probably guys that are not very serious about their faith. And when they see Jesus hanging there, they, just like everybody else, begin mocking him. Kind of like if you ever go to a ball game of any kind, there's always some guy in the 23rd row with a mustard stain on his shirt going, hit the ball, you lazy bum, right? Well, that's kind of the idea here, is that you've got these people that are just walking by with men on crosses, and it would have been a normal thing that... They would have executed people that way. And they're drunk and they're mocking Jesus. So their response to the cross is indifference. He's just another guy that got killed. And we're just making our way through this life. Let us just continue eating and drinking and hanging out. And they're mocking him. They're, they're, this is a show for them. So their response to the cross is mocking. It's nothing but a show. This is silly, and this is the response that many in our world have to the cross as well. They mock our faith, they, they mock Jesus, because if you think about it, he's not the victorious warrior that many people want as a leader. Instead, he wins his victory by losing. He wins his victory by laying down his life. He wins the victory by humility. And he wins the victory by taking the evil intents of the devil, evil intents of humanity, and turning them for good. So these guys are all mocking them. So, 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 too far, so far we have two negative responses to the cross. The first response is to stay in your guilt, stay in your shame, stay in your fear, and not go to the cross for forgiveness. 
the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They looked at the cross. They, they didn't run for forgiveness. Instead, they stayed uh, hardcore in their religion and their thoughts about who Jesus was. In the same way, these mockers, they didn't even think about it at all. They're just there hanging out. They just came in from the field, and now they're just mocking somebody. So indifference. Those are the two responses so far. Fear, guilt, and shame, and indifference. But look at this third response, which is interesting. Verse 48. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. So outside the city, Jesus would have been hung there with other people being crucified. Uh, usually, crucifixion was some kind of, the kind of execution that they would give to people that they saw as a threat to the Roman government in some way. So these guys, they're called robbers, but they probably were uh, working against the Roman institutions. And so this would have been the normal thing to see people crucified this way so that Rome could point out this is what happens when you mess with Rome. But there were Jewish women inside the city of Jerusalem. Tradition tells us, Josephus, who was a writer at this time, tells us that there were Jewish women that would go outside of the city with wine and with sticks and, then, and sponges. And they would dip the wine into the sponges and then they would give it to the men who were being crucified as an act of compassion, as an act of mercy, both to quench their thirst and to maybe take a little edge off of the pain as they're suffering in the most horrible way that you could possibly suffer. And so we don't know who this is. It's probably one of those women. We have no idea. There's never anything after this that tells us who it is. But look at her, probably her, response to the cross. Compassion. Mercy. Does she know who Jesus is? We don't really know. Maybe she doesn't know who he is, and she's just handing him mercy. And she's like one of those ones that uh, we're told in Matthew 25 when Jesus says, uh, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you've given it to me. She had no idea that she was giving wine to the Son of God, probably. Or, I guess it's possible that she did. But we don't know anything about her after this. But what we do know is that the cross moved her to compassion. The cross moved her to mercy. Has the cross moved you that direction yet? To where you see your need for God's forgiveness in the cross so clearly that now you can give mercy to other people when they mess up when they make mistakes and they're flawed and they're just human, just like you. Well, this is what the cross can do. Does the cross make you respond with compassion like this woman? All right, let's, let's move to uh, more of the people interacting at the cross. Now, of course, the main figure interacting at the cross is Jesus. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So that's three, or sorry, noon to three. So what it's saying is this, that morning was a normal day, but somewhere around noon, darkness came over the land. It became extremely overcast. Some people believe that it was even raining, although we're not told that it was raining, but it was so overcast that it became dark at noon. And it was noticeable to everybody, it was clear to everybody that it became dark at noon. There's even records, I believe in Josephus it is, there's records that of this day that there was a darkness at noon on the day of Passover. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, the darkness comes over. 
And I think that we're also to believe from this that there is a spiritual darkness at work as well. Because he's on the cross, evil thinks it's winning. Evil thinks we're about to kill him. We're about to take him out, and then we will take over. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what is Jesus' response to the cross? On the surface, it looks like Jesus loses faith. On the surface, it looks like Jesus feels like God is not good. I mean, look what he says. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's a common expression, right? My God, when something happens, oh my God. We, we respond, or in, in, in the midst of something terrible, my God, we will cry out. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not taking the Lord's name in vain. I think a lot of times when we say, my God, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. But here, he is actually saying it as a prayer. And what's interesting is Jesus always calls God his Father, but here he just says, my God, my God. What's going on at this moment? This moment, Jesus is on the cross, and the sin of the world is upon him. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin I've ever committed and will commit, the sins of everyone in the world are upon Jesus at this moment. And he's bearing the weight of it. And as he's bearing the weight of it, what sin does is it makes you feel alienated from God. So as he's bearing the weight of it, he feels the alienation from God, that he is somehow now alone. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it's not that God did forsake him. We know that for sure, and I'll show you in just a moment. But it's that he felt that way in this moment. That Jesus entered so far into our humanity, that he entered all the way into our humanity, not just the human part, but the sinful part was upon him. And he experienced for the first time what sin was, which is alienation from God. And so he experienced for the first time what it felt like to be forsaken. And here's the reality. You know and I know that you have felt forsaken by God, that God was not there, that he has somehow left you alone. But here, this is showing that even in the midst of this most dark moment in Jesus' life, when he feels forsaken, God has not forsaken him. One way that we know that is because God created the darkness on this day, that God was with him in the darkness on this day. And God knew what he had to go through, and, and removing him from the cross would be removing him from our salvation. And Jesus knows that too. So he bears that forsakenness. But there's something else going on here in the text as well. Jesus is actually not saying something lacking faith. He's actually saying something that is filled with faith. Because what Jesus is doing is he's quoting directly from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by the King David when he was in distress in a situation, but then it becomes like a prayer for all of us as we're in distress and we're in pain. We can pray Psalm 22, but the, one of the main things Psalm 22 is doing is telling us what Jesus goes through on the cross. That when Jesus is hanging on the cross, this is what he prays. It's not just that he prayed the first verse of Psalm 22. He was praying Psalm 22. Now, I want, I want you now, we're going to read some of it together. I want you to look at Psalm 22 with me and let it set in your mind, but I want you to hear it as if Jesus is praying it from the cross. 
because that's the idea. He's quoting the one verse, but the idea, he's praying the whole thing uh, as well. This is, would have been a common thing for rabbis to do. So Psalm 22, it'll be up on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Imagine Jesus praying this. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you are Lord. Do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Then at the end of this psalm, he says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So as Jesus is on the cross, he's praying this psalm to God. And it's not, a, it's not a rejection of God's presence, but in the midst of feeling forsaken, he leans into the scriptures and prays. This is the greatest act of faith, and this is the greatest response to the cross, obviously, and this is a response we can learn from. That in our greatest desperation and need, we pray. And we go to scripture and we let God speak to us through these prayers. And so he prays this Psalm 22 as an act of faith, in God, but then he gives himself up in sacrifice. So Jesus' response is prayer and then sacrifice. Look at this in verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. So after the, he takes the wine, he cries out with a loud voice, and he yields up his spirit. So what did he cry out? What's interesting, this is the second time he cried out. The first time he cries out in a very loud voice, the language is he, uh, trying to get the idea across that it's extremely loud, that he was screaming this out. He prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here it says he cries out and then gives up his spirit. So he cries something out and then gives up his spirit and dies. What was he praying? What was he saying? Well, we know if we go over to the Gospel of John, we know what he cried out. In the Gospel of John, he just cried out one word. Tetelestai. Which means, it is finished. Paid in full. The mission is fulfilled. So he hung on the cross and he cried out, Tetelestai. It is finished. 
and he gave up his life. Jesus' response to the cross was obedience, prayer, sacrifice. Jesus' response to the cross was to lay down his life and give up his spirit. But he lets his spirit ascend to God. Now, have you ever thought about dying? I don't mean like we've all thought about dying, but I mean like the moment of dying. I had a dream the other night that I was in a plane. And I was with my son, uh, and we were in the plane, and we were talking to each other, and suddenly the plane just starts spinning and going down. And I realized in my dream, okay, we're going to die. There's no recovering from this. And then he, the pilot somehow pulled up, okay, we're good again. And then, boom, we're going down to the ground again. And so I prayed, and I just, okay, Lord, I am ready to come into your presence. I am ready now. What am I hoping in in that moment? I'm hoping that everything that is here is true. I'm putting all my faith in that moment in the fact that this is all true and that when I get to the other side, things are going to be okay. But what I realized is the hardest part. See, I'm not really afraid of what comes after death because I do believe this. But it's that moment of dying and what happens right there in that exact moment. That's the moment Jesus is facing as he's given up his spirit. I don't know why it says he had to give up his spirit, but he gave up his spirit. And remember, he's fully human, just like you and me, even though he's fully God. And so he has to cross that line. And he does so with sacrifice. And we're told in the book of Hebrews, he does so because he has you in mind. So Jesus' response to the cross is prayer and sacrifice. Now quickly, we're going to look at a couple more responses. Uh, three more responses. The Father, the centurion, and the women disciples. God the Father also responds to Jesus' dying on the cross. Look at what happens here in verse 50. As Jesus cried out, it is finished, gave up his spirit, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, he went into the holy city and appeared to many. So God the Father has already shown his presence there in the darkness at noon as his son is dying. For three hours it was dark. And he was there with his son in the midst of that pain and darkness. But now, after his son gives up his spirit, the first thing God does is this. He shakes the earth. There's an earthquake across the whole land. Everybody knows. Can you imagine if you were there at that moment? You're looking at Jesus. He cries out, says this, and immediately an earthquake begins to shake the whole land. Now, most people in the city don't know why this earthquake is happening. And what's happening is over in the temple is very interesting. Because at 3 p.m. exactly, on this day uh, of the Passover week at 3 p.m., there was to be a sacrifice of the sacrificial lamb inside the temple exactly at 3 p.m. And exactly at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished, and gives up his soul to God. And then exactly at 3 p.m., the curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. Now, here's what you need to know about the curtain. In the temple, there would have been this massive complex, and then there, would have been a, there was an outer court anybody could go to. Then there was a court of a Gentiles where gent- people that were not Jewish could go and worship God. Uh, but 
then there was another court that only Jewish people could go into, Jewish men and women. Then there was another court that only Jewish men could go into. Then there was another court, or, or behind a veil, that only Jewish men who were priests could go into. And then there was one final veil that was about two feet thick, woven together, super heavy, soundproof, that only one priest once a year could go into. And that priest had to go in there with the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed and had to go in and offer it to God as a sacrifice for the people. At this moment, Jesus is sacrificed outside of the city. The curtain of the temple opens up saying that everybody can come in. Everybody from all nations and ethnicities, everybody can come in. Men and women could come in. But even more importantly than everybody can come in is God is coming out. God's not going to be confined to the temple anymore because Jesus has died. His presence by the power of the Holy Spirit is going out into the world because the sacrifice for sin has been made. And so God's presence is now sweeping through the world and is still sweeping through the world 2,000 years later. We might not feel it as much in America, but in Africa, Asia, South America, the church and the gospel is breaking out like crazy right now. Hundreds and thousands of people are being converted and added to the church daily in many of these places. So the, it has not stopped. God's response to the cross is the salvation of the world and the welcoming of the world into his holy temple. And then he even raises a few people from the dead. We're not told much about this. We don't know who these people are. We never hear anything about it later. But he raises a few people from the dead as a picture of the fact of what he's going to do with all of us. He's going to raise Jesus from the dead, and he's going to raise all of us from the dead as well. So the Father responds to Jesus' death on the cross with salvation. Okay, now there are two other responses. First was the response of the female disciples. Look at uh, verse 55. There were many women there at the cross, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph the mother the sons of Zebedee. And, so, and we also see a little later when he's put into the tomb, the women are there too. So the, what does this tell us? The women go stay with Jesus while he's at the cross. It says they watch from a distance, but they stay with him. Where are the disciples? Where are the men? We know from John's gospel that John was the only disciple there. Everybody else ran and fled, but the women stayed with Jesus. They stayed near the cross, and they stayed with Jesus, demonstrating that their response to the cross was faithfulness. They did not abandon him, but they stayed near him in his greatest hour of need. And that's often really what is most needed from us, to stay near him, to show up, to keep being there. I love what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this exact concept of the faith of the women that stayed the, near Jesus at the cross. He says, now there were there, talking about the women, there were there women, say volumes and teach in summary the doctrine of vocation, or calling is the idea of vocation. So think about your calling. The Christian's main vocational responsibility is to be there. Fidelity. Faithfulness. The twelve apostles are conspicuous by their absence. The family of Jesus, too, is not specifically mentioned. 
but they were there, but there, there were there some faithful women standing at a respectful distance away, watching everything. The quintessence of Christian discipleship is simply being there, showing up, not calling in sick, reporting for duty, fidelity. In the gospel, the accolade heard by those pleasing the Lord is, well done, thou good and faithful servant, not thou good and flashy servant. So the, the, the response of the women is one of the best responses you could possibly have. They don't leave. Even when there's shame personally for them to stay with Jesus, they don't leave. They stay with him. And this is the calling for us. This could be the response for you. Stay near him. Now there was another man, Joseph of Arimathea, and I'll just tell you his story, what happened with him. He was a rich man who was a disciple of Jesus, which is important because we are told that in the Gospel of Matthew that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But we do know that some rich men enter the kingdom of God, Joseph of Arimathea being one of them. And he took his money and his status and he went to Pilate. Pilate would have already known about him because he's probably a very well-respected businessman in the city. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. He couldn't stand the thought of Jesus just being thrown into an open grave with the other criminals. And so he, in compassion, asks for the body of Jesus to be taken to his tomb, which he purchased for him and his family, uh, which would have been extremely expensive. Only the most wealthy people in society would have a tomb like this. And so he goes out of compassion. So his response to the cross is compassion, but then also generosity. He took this incredibly expensive thing that was an, an heirloom of his family, something he was going to be important for his family for coming generations, that he had sacrificed financially for, extremely expensive, and he gave it to Jesus. Now thank God that Jesus only had to borrow it for three days, right? Joseph didn't know that, though. He gave it to Jesus. So what is his response? Generosity. So we see several responses here, I'm gonna, and I want to give you one more. It's the response of the centurion. The centurion showed up that day to kill some people, to beat some people, to murder them on crosses. He left that day a different man. Look what happens. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So he observed all the events. He might have even been involved in Jesus' crucifixion and beating directly with his physical hands. He might have been part of nailing Jesus to the cross. But when he saw the way Jesus died, when he saw the darkness, when he saw the events surrounding him, when he saw the reactions of Jesus, when he saw the earthquake, he saw the whole day, it hit him. This man is the son of God. And there are even uh, traditions of the early church that this man becomes a great leader in the early church in Christianity, this Roman soldier. But what converted him that day? Like I said, he showed up to kill some people. He showed up to nail Jesus to the cross, and he probably did. But by the, before Jesus died, or right after Jesus died, he, he becomes a Christian. He watched Jesus die, and his death on the cross saved him. Martin Luther says about this, The soldier's confession is the sign and the power of the death of Christ. The blood of Christ not only wakens dead bodies, but also sinners' souls. 
So let me ask you, what is your response? What is your response to the tragedy of the death of Jesus? My prayer, my hope is that you will say like the centurion, he is the son of God. Even if you've already said it, say it again and again. This is your confession every day. He is the son of God. It's one of the reasons why we have confessions in our church. So we're continually saying together, he is the son of God. He is the son of God. Maybe your response will be like Joseph and Arimathea, generosity and compassion. Maybe your response will be like the women, fidelity and faith and faithfulness and showing up and being there because Jesus has done this for you. But everybody must respond. And our response to our Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is you truly are the son of God. And it demands everything of my life. But he has shown us that he has loved us to death because he actually gave up himself here. He passed through death. He went to that other side. He faced it for us. The question is, how will you respond? The most important thing about you is your response to the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us the response of Joseph. Give us the response of the women at the tomb. Give us the response of the soldier. Give us faith. May we live near your cross and stay near your cross and know that it is through the cross that we are forgiven and loved and being redeemed. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son. Take the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of the love of God.